Section 14 of Six Radical Thinkers by John McCunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 The Anti Democratic Radicalism of Thomas Carlyle, Part 1. The references are to the People's Edition of Carlyle's Works. Carlyle's verdict upon J. S. Mill was that he was too fond of demonstrating everything and so far at least as the form of his own thought is concerned he is at peculiar pains not to fall into the same extreme the logic of the schools rushlight logic closet logic vulgar logic finds little favour in his eyes except as a target for objurgations cogito ergo sum alas poor cogitator that will take us but a little way it is so he blasphemes the father of constructive idealism this runs throughout in emerson's phrase he does not love to spin the ostentatious continuity so little does he love it that most of his readers we suspect though they recognize the splendor and force of passages have but an imperfect notion of the connection of the whole and so when friendly they are content to take carlyle as a man of intuitions intuitions as abrupt and inconsecutive as those of the hebrew prophets to whom and not without justification they are wont to liken him and when unfriendly they are not without a leaning toward that critic of the sun who wrote down sartorisartus as a heap of clotted nonsense this difficulty of interpretation meets us when we turn to his politics for at first sight his politics puzzle he is not tory nor whig nor radical in the ordinary sense of the word except indeed in so far as he may be made to fill office admirably in all of these parties as devil's advocate every student of his life and writings must know that he spent many an hour for many a year in flinging projectiles of which he had an unlimited store with impartially good aim at all parties in the state the scavenger age he once called the nineteenth century cuius pars magna it is to the whigs perhaps that he is least respectful he hated their half-hearted via media he despised them both for their lack of foundations and even more perhaps for the fact that they did not seem to miss them he was thorough they were the grand dilettanti there is more hope of an atheist utilitarian he once wrote out in his diary of a superstitious ultratory than of such a lukewarm withered mongrel it is true that as years went on his estimate softened the titular aristocracy whig or other was not quite anathema maranatha there stands a sentence in which late in life he records his deliberate verdict that from plebs to princeps there was still no class among us intrinsically so valuable and recommendable and yet even this strong as the words are is not much better than a commutation of the sentence passed in earlier years the writer of the epitaph upon that worthy nobleman the count von sedam had some amends to make to the double-barrelled game-preserving corn-lying aristocracy of chartism and past and present carlyle was all his life a believer in aristocracy but as happens sometimes with other believers in aristocracy like plato burke and coleridge 
his tributes to the natural aristocracies of insight and of worth are the bitterest of satires upon the aristocracy of titles pedigrees broad acres sport and luxury and yet it is not to be forgotten that carlyle is severely impartial for one must hasten to add that if whigs and tories pleased him not neither did radicals if the aristocratic landlords whom he called upon in sardor resardus to be pioneers of emigration were preserving their game what were the radicals doing they were busy ballot-boxing on the graves of heroic ancestors or sending masters of tongue-fence to the national palaver or shouting for liberty to leap over precipices or jubilantly preparing to shoot niagara even in face of this however and of much else in the same strain radicals are not left without their consolations for it must be consolation of a kind to know that if their shrift be short they receive it at the hands of one who is probably a greater radical than themselves for beyond a doubt carlyle is a radical of the first magnitude what other name can fit the preacher of the doctrine as it stands written in sarda resardus that all ranks dignities institutions creeds are but the clothes often threadbare enough wherewith the human spirit patches its nakedness and masquerades in the world's eye the entire volume is one prolonged cry of old clothes that chapter the world out of clothes with its levelling disillusionments is surely sanculatism of an advanced type and when was the natural equality of men more picturesquely set forth than in those few pages on atomatism speculative radical is indeed his own epithet for teufelsdruck and spiritual radicalism for his doctrine both phrases fit carlyle himself similarly in regions less visionary and less speculative carlyle drank in radicalism in his father's cottage he was bred on a countryside where radical tradition was in the blood the religious faith of his early years was emphatically one which knew no respect of persons by hearsay by observation which few things escaped by personal experience he was familiar with the struggles and the worth of the poor with humble life he had to the end of his days a deep and understanding sympathy and when in chartism in eighteen thirty nine and past and present in eighteen forty three he directly attacked political questions his utterance is radical to the roots it is radical in the lurid exposition of the condition of england question and is radical in its fiery and menacing demand that something must be done and done quickly all carlyle's flouts and flings all his jibes and scoffs and their name is legion at the political radicals of his day must not be suffered to hide the fact that to the genius that winged his words he united a practical insight that made him the passionate advocate of popular causes since familiar enough far in advance of his day one need but name poor law reform corn law reform factory acts land law reform not to speak of public health and emigration it is long years he writes to emerson of the revolution of eighteen forty eight since i felt any such deep-seated satisfaction at a public event 
and even that wild unbridled derisive outburst which forever divided him from the ordinary political radicals the latter-day pamphlets what is it but one of the most vehement pleas ever penned for administrative reform nor is it simply that he dealt with these things many others did that his distinction was to deal with them after such a fashion with humour pathos paradox satire invective eloquence as to burn them into the mind of his generation it is for this reason that he is not only a radical but the father of radicals how many radicals and others one may wonder have found their inspiration in the trumpet calls of past and present or even in that single short concentrated explosive chapter helitage in the volcanic page of sardarasardus yet if we claim carlyle for radicalism and nothing else is possible it is very certain that his is not the radicalism we know not that of bentham or mill or bright or cobden or mazzini or green for it is radicalism in disbelief derision and denunciation of democracy one finds him writing to emerson that he was much struck with plato and his notions about democracy small wonder for since plato wrote the eighth book of the republic there has been no such satirist of democracy as this spiritual radical now of course carlyle never dreamed of denying that democracy was a fact his eyes were open to the signs of the times and he saw that it had come the tramp of its million feet he declares is in all our streets and thoroughfares nor did he doubt that it would run its course as little did he dispute that it had its uses the author of the french revolution knew well its powers to cleanse and destroy it was especially valuable as an instrument for deposing shams and quacks in all this wild revolutionary work he once said from protestantism downwards i see the blessedest result preparing itself so in his view of democratic theories he was no lover of benthamism as we shall see but he did not fail to discern the possibilities of root and branch work that it carried within it but there his appreciations stopped what remains for democracy at his hands can only be described as a prolonged culmination service this is the more interesting because there is so much in carlyle's thought that might seem to make for thorough-going democracy for carlyle is on many points in singular agreement with his democratic friend mazzini like that apostle of the religion of democracy he believes in the divinity of the individual man through every living soul the glory of a present god still beams he is emphatic here the veriest human scarecrow he assures us holds his title of manhood from the maker direct the dullest clodpole the haughtiest featherhead has that divine spark in him which constrains him to follow the leader of men the hero when he sees him none of all the writers of democracy has ever spoken as he has of the peasant saint or done more to dignify the toils obscure of honest poverty not even burns but there he parts company when mazzini goes on to argue and surely not without a presumption in his favour that if men are thus in very truth the children of god 
they must be trusted to take their political destinies into their own hands and work out their own political salvation he will have none of it and so as the years went on and he saw english democracy running its course he has nothing left to offer it but jeers ever more derisive at the twenty-seven million gods of the gallery scoffs ever more embittered at horsehood and doghood suffrage and even let the worst be said execrations upon what he once called the rotten multitudinous canaille the truth here is exactly as mazzini puts it in his criticism carlyle believes in god he believes also in the worth of the individual man however humble and homely what he does not believe in what he abhors and distrusts for evermore is the collective will god and the individual man mr carlyle sees no other object in the world so run mazzini's words carlyle's indictment of democratic radicalism is on the face of it highly rhetorical he could not write without rhetoric but it is also the rhetoric that has reasons behind it this is so even in his most explosive outbursts and in the present instance he leaves us in no doubt as to what his reasons were one reason was that he realized with a penetrating insight the depth and difficulty of the problems he used to laugh sardonically at some of the questions that agitated politicians game laws usury laws african blacks hill coolies smithfield cattle and dog-carts and even when the country was convulsed over the first reform bill he had an intuition that the real questions lay deeper than merely political reforms could touch it never smokes but there is fire was the motto he chose for his chartism but as he looked out in the thirties first from the dunscorpatmus of craig puddock and afterwards from his retreat in chelsea it was on a spectacle of deep-seated social disorganization it was an england of full purses and full poorhouses of overproduction when clothes could not find backs and backs could not find clothes to cover them where every new machine was welcomed and that cunningest of all machines a man was superfluous where there was endless work to be done and where willing workers sought in vain for work to do it was in england in short ill-fed ill-housed discontented given over to smashing of machinery and rick-burning and mutinous chartist agitation carlyle saw this and felt it call ye that a society he cries where there is no longer any social idea extant not so much as the idea of a common home but only of a common overcrowded lodging-house where each isolated regardless of his neighbour turned against his neighbour clutches what he can get and cries mine and calls it peace because in the cut-purse and cut-throat scramble no steel knives but only a far cunninger sort can be employed this was the condition of england question as carlyle raised it and he could not believe that democratic radicalism was equal to its solution it was unequal to the work that had to be done powerful to destroy it was impotent to reconstruct admirable as a besom to sweep the world of simulacra reorganization was beyond it forcible enough for wresting tools from the hands that could not use them it was feeble for putting them into hands that could 
he never seems to have had much faith in it at any time and after the death of peel the one contemporary statesman in whom he had some confidence his disbelief in political methods steadily grew upon him till the note that was struck in latter-day pamphlets in eighteen fifty found its sequel in eighteen sixty seven in the wild whirling derisive invective of shooting niagara but he had reasons all along his faith in collective wisdom was of the slenderest and one can easily see why for it was part of the doctrine of unconsciousness as given to the world in the pregnant early essay on characteristics that even the greatest actors on the world's stage are swept along by ideas of which they are but imperfectly conscious it was always his conviction that the forces of life lie deeper than the plummet of consciousness can sound the ideas that master men are greater than the ideas men master some of the most picturesque effects in all his writings are those in which he loves to describe how even intellectual leaders in the very hour of their fancied enlightenment are being precipitated towards ends they wot not of was it not so with the french salon before the revolution in love with new ideas and all unconscious of the blood-boltered nemesis that was lying in ambush for them was it not so with the revolutionary leaders filled with the latest lights of encyclopedism and so soon to be devoured by the spectre of anarchy which they had themselves unchained was it not so with the french noblesse who scoffed at the theories of the social contract and whose skins were used to bind the second edition of that work if these things were done in the green tree what was likely to be done in the dry should power pass into the hands of those whom even mill designated the collective mediocrity and common uncultivated herd on the whole so runs one of many similar reflections in the french revolution how unknown is a man to himself or a public body of men to itself aesop's fly on the chariot wheel exclaiming what a dust i do raise it needed only that this gospel of the unconscious to which even genius must bow should join hands with a low and not seldom a contemptuous and cynic estimate of popular intelligence and we have all the elements for that scornful belittlement of popularly elected parliaments which grew upon carlyle pari passu with the growth of democratic power fatuity could no further go than to suppose that an electorate mostly fools could by the panacea of ballot-boxes find their way where even illuminati had stumbled and fallen or solve problems which called for nothing less than the insight and valour of the rare heaven-elected leader of men End of section 14